Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Explored, a podcast where I unfold, with the help of my amazing guests from across the world, how sustainability practices are integrated into business operations in various industries. My name is Anna. I am an environmentalist, sustainability consultant, and the host of this show. Today we're discussing urban planning designed for comfort and sustainability and differences of approach of the U.S. cities building versus the approach of Eastern European cities. I'm talking with Oknan Georgiev, my great friend from Bulgaria. We first met in 2016, I think, in Berlin, where we both attended the series of journalism workshops by Robert Bosch Foundation. I was working at that time with my team on the environmental story on lignite power plants in Kosovo, and Ognan was developing a research on the Russian information war in Europe. Experienced editor with a history of working in the newspapers industry, strong economy professional skilled in breaking news, event management, journalism, media, and international relations. Next thing I know, he's researching urban dynamics and labor migration in MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the US. All of this is to say, prepare yourself for a highly inspirational, intellectual, and interesting interview. I'm thrilled, excited, and super honored to have Augie with us today. Can't wait to start. But before we do, you can use this moment to subscribe to this podcast to always be up to date with the sustainability news across countries and industries. All right, ready? Let's dive right into it. So, Augie, thanks so much for joining me today for this um, episode on sustainable cities and the future of city as such in the post-pandemic world. Very cool to be talking to you today after so many years of not seeing you. Uh, I gave a little bit of context in the intro. So I told the listeners where we met, and that was Bosch, in case you don't remember. Tell me more. I, I actually don't know how you transitioned from investigative journalism, and if you can go back a little bit to that Bosch, what was it, like grand program in 2015-16 what what was your uh, topic of research back then and how you transitioned to what you were doing recently and i will ask you then to stop in more details at this mit wonderful internship shall i call program hey lovely to see you um good day to everyone who's listening. Yeah, it's been a while. I uh, am back now after a year in the US. Um, so yes, my Bosch program was in 2015, 2016. It was a research grant from uh, reporters in the field. And my topic actually has to do something with Ukraine. It was, as probably everybody in Ukraine and elsewhere remember, 2015 was just after the Russian-Ukrainian, should I call it a war, should I call it a conflict, um, started. And this was the moment that everybody started noticing that there was something going on online. And that something was the Russian information war, which was intensifying. Now, at the time, 
not many people actually paid attention to it. I have to say, in 2014 and 2015, the, the primary subjects of this war was Ukrainians, and it was waged mainly in Ukraine. So the Russians haven't actually taken it abroad as much as they had after that. And I was starting to notice patterns in the way the Bulgarian public opinion has been shaped by that. And I wanted to see if other countries were also suffering from that. I got a grant from Bosch Foundation to, to compare Germany and Bulgaria and the way the information war was waging in both places. And unfortunately, but luckily for my research, that was exactly the time when Lisa case happened in Germany. Um, to those of you who don't remember, uh, Lisa was a 13-year-old Russian girl living in Germany. Uh, that claimed to be raped by immigrants. And that story was picked up heavily by the Russian propaganda machine and turned into a very, very intense story that influenced Russian-German relations to a big, bigger uh, degree. And so I got to meet a lot of Russians, a lot of Russian um, people living in Germany and understanding how this propaganda, and I would divide it into... Conscious propaganda and unconscious propaganda, like things that Russians do for the inside public and things they do for the outside public. How is this influencing the European public opinion and the, the various degrees to which it affects the political life in countries? So this was the topic of my research at the time. And after that, you know, uh, the topic of Russian information war exploded and there were the American elections and stuff like that. So, yes, um, just... Several months ago, Merkel, uh, Angela Merkel actually approved a report by the German counterintelligence that said that back in 2015, 2016, the Russians were actively involved into manipulating the elections in Germany and also trying to use internal sources to, to destabilize the society. So it has repercussions going on and on and on. But it was a very, very interesting topic at the time. And I, and I found it very interesting. But this was the way I got into the Bosch network, which is an amazing thing to be in, I have to say to everybody who wants and can join the network, please do. It's an amazing thing. And, and from then on, I, I kept on doing journalistic things. I, I am um, one of the managing editors of Capital, which is a leading Bulgarian weekly, I would say the best at the present newspaper in Bulgaria, and one of the last remaining opposition voices in Bulgaria. Not an uncommon view in Central and Eastern Europe, unfortunately. So I kept on doing that. And in the meantime, I started developing more and more interest into the regional stuff, uh, cities planning and how do cities develop, how do regions develop. Why is it that some regions fail and other regions work? Uh, why is it that people choose to live somewhere or not, uh, somewhere else? Uh, why is it that regions in Europe, on the periphery of Europe, are suffering so much? And why are they losing population, competition, and everything? And what is going to happen to them? And how do you turn it around? And I was doing that as part of a thing called Capital Cities, which is our edition devoted to urban centers in Bulgaria. And I was doing a lot of talking to analysts, to local authorities, business. And then I started developing this theory, if you wish, of how things work in the European Union. And in the beginning, it was obvious that the deal for Central and Eastern Europe was that Central and Eastern Europe gets the money. When it enters the European Union, it gets the money. 
And the, the backside of the deal is that it loses people. So people versus money is the deal basically in the European Union. You get inside, you get a lot of things. You get free movement, you get free movement of capital, you get free movement of stocks and people. And unfortunately, the flow of people is mostly one way from Eastern uh, Europe to Western Europe. Uh, and the flow of money from Brussels is the opposite way. And it's supposed to, in theory, it's supposed to equalize itself like the theory goes that in several years several decades more like the economical development of the both sides of the continent will be similar to the extent where people would actually want to live in both places now that's the theory as we know the practice is not exactly that like people have been leaving central eastern europe in large quantities and still continue to do so and i wanted to see if we are anywhere near this threshold where cities in, in, in the region can actually start attracting back some of the migrants that left. And there is a very obvious comparison here to be made because the European Union acts as a single country only in the past, what is it, a decade? So it doesn't have this history and data of being together for a longer period of time so that you can actually analyze how the flow of people is going. But there is another obvious comparison, and that's the U.S. U.S. have been a single country for more than 200 years, and this flow of people there has been analyzed thoroughly. And they have lots of migration from the East Coast to the West Coast, from the center regions to both coasts. So they have been following the flow of people and how do they migrate for a longer period of time. So I wanted to compare a developed country like the U.S. and how the flow of people goes there to what is happening in Europe and whether we will follow any of the, the same pattern. And I applied to Fulbright with, uh, with this idea. I didn't apply as a journalist. I applied as an urban researcher because this is the field that I wanted to be in. And they actually accepted me. They said, okay, they, they said, that's a good idea. Why not? And I, I had no idea at the time where I would end up. And then when the letter came and said that I would end up in Boston and MIT, as you can imagine, I was like overwhelmed. Mind-blowing. Yeah. So that's, the, that's in short the, the story. Well, you know, I want to highlight one particular thing that you just mentioned. I did not apply as a journalist. I applied as urban researcher because that's where I wanted to be. You know, many, so many people struggle, including myself with the imposter syndrome. It's like, well, but I graduated with the X degree. And how, how do I think I will apply for Y uh, job? Do whatever, you know, whatever you see yourself in the future. And that's very, very interesting thought. Thanks for reminding me of that. I've been suffering from imposter syndrome times and again in my life. Now, what I've seen is that People often underestimate themselves in thinking like that. Of course, there is a level of expertise in being a field long enough that you get, and it's important, and it's, of course, not replicable. But then again, there are things that you can do that are outside of your field of expertise when you feel that you are competent enough to do it and you feel that you have interest in them, that you can always try doing it. For example, I've been doing economic analysis and I've been doing regional development things, like not in practice, but in following people that have been doing it and talking to them and analyzing that for quite some time. And I had the reasonable 
doubt, if you want, that I am good at research and I'm good at analytics. And uh, the journalism is not the only field where I can apply that. And I found another area of interest and I just decided to, to go for it. Now, I would definitely say that I don't know anything there, like everything there is to know about urban planning, of course, no. That's a whole different field and a whole different area of expertise. But am I happy that I've ventured into foreign territories? Yes, definitely. I, I know a lot more than I knew a year ago. Like I spend a lot more learning, talking to people, exploring, and I'm happy to do so. That's amazing. That's very well, empowering what you're saying. You know, just find where the areas of expertise of what you have been doing and what you're only planning to do overlap and, you know, twist it. Show it as your stronger side. Yeah. Let's go deeper in this MIT. Obviously, you did not expect. It took you by surprise, breathtaking experience. Last year, you went for it, and it was supposed to last one year completely. But due to corona crisis, you had to leave earlier. Tell us a little bit more, you know, from the perspective of overall atmosphere, emotional side of it, and academic, we will get to it later, how was it to spend a year at MIT in urban studies? Well, first of all, I have to say that I've never been in a top three university in the world. It's a totally different experience for me to, to be in an atmosphere that is so charged with knowledge, power, ambition, everything. It's an overwhelming and mind-blowing experience. They have uh, this expression in MIT that you are drinking from a hose, like from a fire hose. It's like the water keeps splashing all over you and you try to get as much as possible. Of course, it's impossible uh, because MIT is, um, is the, best, the, the best engineering university in the world. And as such, it attracts the top quality in every possible sphere there is from um, biology and physics to mathematics and engineering and to urban planning, if you want, and architecture. It, it goes from all over this horizon of, of science. And I've, of course, been, been humbled by that. And I've tried to do as much as possible there. I, I was there on a non-degree program. It's a program, by the way, that a lot of uh, Europeans can apply to. It's called the Humphrey Program, Hubert, Hubert Humphrey Program. It's a mid-career professional program that exactly does the thing that we were talking about. It gives mid-career people an option to either change the field more of the qualities they need. And so as a mid-career program, this is a wonder, as wonderful as it goes. You spend a year in this amazing, amazing opportunity field uh, where... It suffice to say that MIT is the best example I've seen of business and, and science going together. If, if there's a talk in Ukraine, as it is in Bulgaria now, of how to link the higher education with business, how to produce more people that are actually valuable to your economy, MIT is the best, the best place to see how this actually works. Because it does work. It is amazing for me, as somebody who comes from a country that... There are basically no research institutes here. Like most of the universities here 
are universities in a classical sense of the world. Uh, of the word, universities in the Oxford type of universities are secluded places that produce knowledge-based people that are not really connected to the real economy. So they're like these ivory towers of, of knowledge that are somewhere out there. Now, a research university is something completely different. A research university is embedded into the local community and embedded into the business community. It is not secluded. It is there to be interacted with. Its basic reason for existing is producing research, not producing students. When, you're, when you turn this shift in your head and you see it from this perspective, it makes a lot of sense. MIT produces tons of research. They, they have labs from everything, from biology, because Boston is the biggest bio and life science hub in the world, uh, to engineers, to um, urban researchers, to architecture, to um, you name it. And there is this very interesting quality to this atmosphere where they don't judge you by the things you learn, uh, by the lectures that you visit, but by the things that you want to achieve and the things you do achieve while you're a student there. It's a humbling experience. Uh, for example, MIT has three startup funds inside itself. Like it has three startup accelerators for people with ideas inside the MIT. So if you're a student, and one of the classes I took was a global ventures class in the MIT Media Lab, which is a very interesting subsection of the School of Architecture, but it basically is the place where, for example, the Kindle Inc. was developed. Wow. Like Jeff Bezos actually found the Kindle Inc. in MIT Media Lab where some students actually developed it and he took it for Kindle and he made it a worldwide success. But this is a place that does things like that. And so MIT Media Lab has lots of things, but one of the things it does is it teaches students how to start companies and how to, how to actually produce things that are valuable. And the, the class, the Global Ventures class, was an exercise in connecting with people and creating ideas that can actually change the world and then finding funding for those ideas. So it's very practical in a sense, very um, useful to see how you can go out of a place and just start doing things immediately. So it's, uh, it's a very different experience. It's a very different experience. It reminds me of uh, one time I took um, a kind of a career coach session, one hour yeah. only. But my takeaway was a very short lesson, the distance between the idea and it's at least the first step towards its realization sh shall be as short as possible. You know, I started to apply it, it was a game changer. Oh, what if I start a podcast, let's say, you know, just record something today, right now, try it, try to write a script, a script. So I understand this, um, uh, this atmosphere of constant movement and application of your findings in real life. Media Lab, when you said Media Lab, I thought, you know, oh, you, you finally found a journalism intersection <laughs> to your urban studies. But that sounds weird, no? It, media in this sense is a wider term. Like they use media as a medium. Like it's right. not only... There is, a, there is a thing devoted to media in a classical sense there, but also... Uh, Media Lab is a place where you can actually work on everything. They have various researchers working on everything from, as I said, 
Ink for Kindle to um, how do you educate children with uh, new data technologies and how do you create virtual classrooms and stuff like that. And from data researchers to uh, city engineers, there is a very good city urban lab there, city science lab, that actually monitors in real time. They have uh, contracts with several cities and they actually monitor in real time the traffic, the um, new developments and stuff. And you can actually project things on the city. And yeah, they, they do a lot of things, but not media as a, only as a media. They, they, they do yeah. it more of a, of a wider sense of the term. You, you could say environment and it would not mean mm. solely environment. Yeah, exactly. Getting more focused on uh, the area of your research, what was it about? And if you can share at least in a couple of sentences your preliminary results. I know you were comparing the model of the city in the US and in Eastern Europe, which is very particular to the rest of Europe, I'm afraid. So what was uh, your, your focus? So <clears throat> as I said, my focus was on, on the comparing migration patterns in some American cities to uh, patterns in uh, Eastern Europe and seeing if they overlap at some point. I've started with desire to learn more about Denver because Denver is one of the places that attract huge amounts of people in, in the US. And I went there and I talked to people and I've tried to make sense of how Denver develops. And then I found out that Denver is not really comparable to Eastern Europe because of lots of peculiarities that it has. It, some of its futures might be useful to think about, like the way it uses public-private partnerships, which is something that is a very interesting idea because I think that Central and Eastern Europe is not using the, the, the two of public-private partnerships as much as it can be, especially Bulgaria, for example, because we've been scarred by years of thinking that public-private partnerships is basically a way to scam the, the, the public and to steal uh, a business opportunity, you know, oligarchs and stuff like that. So this is the mentality that Central and Eastern Europeans have, Ukraine also, on how this works that when you give something to the private sector, it immediately loses the benefits to the public sector and produces oligarchs. This is one extreme option of this, but then there is a middle ground where you can actually make it work because the public doesn't have the necessary funding, the necessary desire or the necessary capabilities of developing something, and then the private sector can step in. It not always works, of course. It's not always successful, but it, it can be, it can be. And so I started looking into Denver as an example. Then I found out that there is another city that actually applies, that actually is more similar to, to the Eastern European landscape, and that's Philadelphia. Philadelphia is one of the oldest American cities, and its basic design is European. Now, William Penn, the founder of Philadelphia, actually made it, sketched the center of Philadelphia in a very European way. The center of Philadelphia reminds a lot of Western European port cities. It's a city surrounding a port. So it has this urban density in the middle that allows for a city to grow. And it kept a lot of this. And so Philadelphia experienced a heavy post-industrial decline in the 60s and the 70s. 
the similar thing that Eastern Europe uh, experienced in the 90s. And then it um, experienced something that's quite unique to the American cities. It's called white flight, where actually the white population started leaving the centers of the city and going to the suburbs and in thus leaving the core of the city to rot, basically. And Philadelphia has been there in the 80s. And suddenly, in the end of the 80s, a mayor and a private company decided that they need to do something. And it started with this idea of outsourcing some of the city governance of the center to this private entity that taxed the business more on security, cleaning the streets, maintaining the buildings, everything, and just turned the center into a more business-like environment that actually convenient to do business in. And they've started from there and they've slowly built the ground for turning the, the downtown Philadelphia thing into a vibrant community with, you name it, restaurants, bars. They even uh, did a program on residential buildings where they actually freed them up from, from uh, property tax for 10 years if they kept the structure intact, if they turned the already existing structures into apartments without tearing them down and building new buildings in order to keep the character of the place. Mm-hmm. And so it worked. Now it's now the downtown Philadelphia thing is booming with people. Uh, Philadelphia attracts more people than it loses for the first uh, in the last three decades. It's turned around the, the the curve, so now it attracts more people. It has plenty of problems, of course, it has plenty of problems. But to me, it was interesting to see what is the spark that that the city has that actually turns around its development and turns it from a downward slope to an upward which is the place where we find ourselves now in. And so I think this is a very useful comparison. And some Eastern European cities are on the same spot, I would say, and are about to start growing again. It's a very different perspective. Right. A growing city is a very different thing from a shrinking city. We were discussing in our pre-conversation before the recording, that we cannot compare, when I, when I suggested we compare in the episode, we compare Sofia, Kiev, Minsk, I don't know, some other Eastern European capital city. You said they are uncomparable. My idea was basically that capitals are not the best starting point for comparison. Capitals in, um, countries, in countries like Ukraine, Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, Hungary, the capitals are the focal points of local migration. So migration starts from smaller cities to the capital and from capital abroad. So people live first to the capital and then abroad. So capitals are this middle ground where you cannot really follow the migration patterns because there is a mix there of capital coming in, people coming in. They're not really the clear uh, research points that you want. I was more interested in second-tier cities because second-tier cities, they suffered the biggest blows in the last two decades. They suffered the biggest blows in terms of losing people, losing capital, losing access to money, you name it. And I think those those were the primary losers. And now they're going to be, some of them are going to start winning this battle. I cannot predict 
who exactly will be this, but I can tell you that cities that have invested in proper governance, they have proper um, local authorities that think about how to make the city better, and they invest in things like kindergarten, schools, soft infrastructure, social infrastructure, uh, that invest in making a city more livable, be it through like biking infrastructure, be it through good environment, be it through cleaner air, be it through um, better city-wide solutions, innovative solutions. I think those were the cities that are, those are the cities that are going to win this new coming fight for talent. And this fight for talent is going to intensify because a lot of people are going to start looking to places to live. And some of them are going to look at the cities back in Central and Eastern Europe and think whether they're on the level enough to, to start attracting people. And I think we are seeing this process to some, to some extent. Some of the people that have been living in Western Europe are now starting to come back. Well, the coronavirus actually intensified that to a large degree, but it was already happening in a way. So I think the upcoming fight for talent is going to be very, very intense. Do you expect the government to use uh, this current situation with corona and pandemic, given that people came back from where they were? A lot of Ukrainians who were working in Poland, in Italy, uh, babysitting, I don't know, collecting uh, fruits and uh, berries and so on, came back to Ukraine. So now we almost like have a full house. What would you suggest? First of all, do you expect the situations change, to, to change internally? For Bulgaria, for example, I guess it's, it's the same. And uh, what would you suggest uh, on a governmental level to do to still keep people inside? Now, I think that the governments, local and national, are very surprised by what had happened. They have been caught of guard, of course, by the coronavirus. But then in Central and East Europe, they've been caught off guard by the large influx of people that came back. They didn't expect that. Like just several months ago, there were those government-sponsored initiatives where people were sent to Western Europe to attract back people, to go and tell them how wonderful it is to, to live back in Ukraine, Bulgaria, whatever. And suddenly, there are those people coming back. Yet you've never expected that, not in a million years. This is not how migration patterns work. Um, migration patterns work slowly, accumulative, and you don't expect like 100,000 people to come back in a, in a month. And so this is a completely new situation we're living in. This is unexpected. Of course, it's not going to last. Of course, many of those people, if unable to find things to do back at home will we'll travel again. But that being said, it is not necessarily so. It is not necessarily that all the people who came back will go back to Western Europe. And even a 10% gain, like even if 10% of all those people stayed, that would still be a tremendous gain and a tremendous bonus that Corona left that was not expected, that was like a 10% gain of human capital. 10% gain of human capital is a huge economic bonus for any place. Now, how do you use that? How do you make that happen? 
is a very tricky question. As I said, people are looking for various things. For example, after the previous crisis in 2008, Philadelphia that I gave as an example, uh, which was losing population, uh, like local population, it still attracts migrants, but it loses local population, have been losing local population. And after the last crisis, some of those people came back to Philadelphia to stay because for the same reason that people now go back to Ukraine or Bulgaria, in a, in a time of crisis, people want to go where they have social safety net, where they have people to, to rely on, where they feel safe, they feel hope. So people came back to Philadelphia. Some of them stayed because they found out that Philadelphia is not a bad place to start a family, to start a business, to, to just live. Because why? So, because of what I've been explaining, because of how Philadelphia developed, because of the newfound dynamism that you had in the city, because of uh, better public spaces, because of better childbearing infrastructure, because of places to go. Because people don't, don't really stay in a place just because there is work in it. As you know, in the corona time, you need more than work to make your life complete. You need to meet other people. You need socializing. You need places to go. You need a lot of things, basically. And the winners will be cities that provide those things at a reasonable rate and at a cost that is less than Western Europe. And then compared to the level of living standards, you can make a good living on a price comparison level in the same location. I would say there are different things that local and national governments can do. Like, for example, one of the primary reasons people stay anywhere is children. So children and their ability to go to school or kindergarten is like a major factor into the decisions of people. People in their early 30s and the middle of the 30s stay or go where they think their children have a better chance to, to succeed. So investing in educational infrastructure in schools or kindergartens or outside of school activities or things like that is a major, major factor in those decisions. This is one of the primary move, uh, moving factors for people. And we're talking outside of jobs, of course. I mean, if you, if you, don't, if you cannot find a job in a place, right. obviously you're going to move. But we're talking about the secondary levers where you've already found a job or you, ha you can find a job easily or you can work your job remotely. And then what are the other factors that affect that? For example, the speed of internet will also be very important. I mean, in the new world, the speed of internet is, is quite a thing. If you can do your things from remotely and, and there is a good internet connection, that's also a good thing. If there is not a good internet connection, things might look different. There are a lot of, lot of things. For example, a new startup infrastructure that allows you to, to, to take easy money to start a business would also be helpful. Um, like, uh, there is a mix, a mix of things that, that can uh, work into this. But I think governments are in a new position and they're not really sure what to do. Yeah, they, they need uh, good advisors. Yeah, I think they do. I think they do. Because uh, the moment is going to be lost very soon. There is a momentum, true. There is a momentum. Here is the question. When you say the city, the, only the vibrant and dynamic city attracts people, 
I know you're not an epidemiologist or a doctor, but do you think as, a, as an urban researcher that perception of a public space is gonna change? Your lockdown, as far as I understood, is over or partially over and people are outside, inside of cafes, outside drinking coffee on the streets. Do you observe the same amount of people as just before the lockdown? Is there still a little bit of a fear of going out? There is, there is residual fear, of course. There are people who wear masks everywhere. There are people who are afraid of going out. There are people who are afraid of going into small spaces. I think this crisis won't be big enough or long enough to change the perception of public spaces. Now, if it lasts for a year or if it lasts for several waves, like big waves, this will probably change the way cities perceive themselves and the way public space is perceived. But it takes a lot of time to do that. In the medieval times, it took waves and waves of the plague in order to densify the cities, to just empty them. And people were still flocking to the cities when this uh, this ended. I don't think the basic structure of the city is going to change. I just think that there will be additions to it. And there will be a bonus to places that put safety first. Like, for example, the protective shields that we see everywhere now in stores and gas stations and stuff, this is an investment they already made. So they're not going to take them down. They're going to stay there. And this is an investment that's going to keep on going. Like, if you build a place and with, that interacts with a lot of people, you might start thinking of whether you should put like wind, uh, like um, you know, protective um, glasses. The way that pharmacies were, were the only places that did that, now everybody's doing it. So this, this sort of changes are going to stay with us because it makes a good business sense to, to have it. For example, if I'm a restaurant owner, I would now look to places that have an outside seating because in this place, in this time, the only way you can survive as a restaurant if you have an outside seating, like people will now go inside and some places they're forbidden to go inside and in some places they just won't. So you would want now to start a place that has an outside because otherwise it, it could be like a lost investment. So things are starting to change. Things are probably going to change. Uh, the way people think about places is going to change. I think the biggest unfortunate result of this is going to be that public transportation is going to go down for a while, that people are going to use more cars. But I also think there are cities that are going to use that as a way of uh, developing bike infrastructure. There are already cities like Bogota that are using this to massively, massively invest in infrastructure for bikes and to, to turn their cities as more eco-friendly cities where people use bikes because they understand that people won't use mass transportation. And you don't want, the yeah. last thing you want is people going back to cars because that's going to be a dead end for a city. Where the city landscape allows you go to Istanbul, you will not see too many bikes because the city is hilly. Same here, really. Well, well, you have to take into account that there are things like electrical bikes that are coming. There's mm -hmm. going to make a lot of, for example, in a coastal city in Bulgaria, it's called Burgas. It's on the Black Sea. That's the only city in Bulgaria that has a, 
working bike infrastructure for a rent. They have a rent, rental biking system. Amazingly, no other big city in Bulgaria managed to do that. So they have a rental biking system. In the past several months, the biggest increase they've seen is people renting electrical bikes because older people need electrical bikes to get everywhere and they want to have electrical bikes. It's easy, it's affordable, it can be done. Why not do it? You see, that's a mental shift. Now, you keep saying these things cannot be happening, but they are happening. They can be done. It's only a matter of investment and a matter of mind shifting your idea. If you think that Kiev can be a biking city, Kiev can be a biking city. If Klitschko decides that he wants to invest in biking infrastructure, there is nothing engineerly impossible in that. That's only a matter of funding and a matter of perception. You see? Like, you can combine biking infrastructure with a lot of other things that make it easy to go through a city, but it's not necessarily built out for cars. I've seen places built out for cars. All of Western America, like all of the cities west of Chicago are built out for cars. And that is a very difficult thing to turn around. But in European sense, there are not a lot of cities that are built out for cars. Cars have been using them for a longer period of time. But there is nothing inherently impossible to, to do that to turn those cities into more bike-friendly, walking-friendly environments, if you want, because people need to walk also instead of just using the bikes. So it, it's, it's not impossible. It's just a matter of perspective, I think. I'm impressed you know the name of the, of the mayor of Kyiv. <laughs> oh, of course I know. I think I've actually met him once in 2015, yeah. Um, what's the mood in the air in Bulgaria about the shift of work? What I mean is that, for example, here in Kyiv, people tried and tested and tasted the idea of not going to the office work remotely is is a thing now so it it just turned out that even banks can go remote and you know no one will die of this change now some of them are allowed to go to the offices but they don't want to they don't want to spend three hours in the traffic so my question is what's the mood in the kind of a mood in the air in Bulgaria and maybe in the uh, urban researchers community, those who you know catch the mood uh, of where people are going. Do you think now, because we don't need to go to the office almost globally, uh, people will move from those super expensive places like say um, capital cities to the second tier city and gain in terms of many things? Silence, peace of mind, less traffic, less office. You see, this is one of the things that I was talking about. Like we all decided collectively that it's not possible to do everything online. Like there were businesses that said, no, it can be done. Like we cannot go online. And then suddenly something happens and we all go online. It's not inherently impossible. You just needed a push big enough for that to happen. So it's, it's the same logic as I was applying. There has been a, a mind shift into how do you do work. And there has been a mind shift in the way businesses see office spaces. And I think this is going to be one of the major drivers of real estate in the next several years. Now, one of the things that real estate markets are going to find out is that businesses will need less space. And this is going to be problematic for 
some real estate businesses. Because if I'm a business and I've been renting this place and suddenly I found out that 20 to 40% of it is totally useless for me. I can do it from home. I can pay 20 to 40% less in, in office space. I would immediately go for that. Why not? I've already been there. I've already saved 40% of my expenses. Why do I need to back it up? Like, if it's not vital for my business, I will not go there. So I think many businesses will start thinking about that. And this will be very interesting to look for in the real estate market, especially in the office spaces. Um, now, whether this is going to affect the way people live and the way people move to cities, yes, I think that if you can go back to your city, and still do your job from there. And as I said earlier, find the reasonable level of existence that you are happy with. Why not? I mean, some people will definitely want to do that. Other people would find that they want to live in a different place and just do their job remotely. And they don't like living in a big city. That's okay. I think, I think a lot of those processes are going to take time. But coronavirus has been a big push in that direction, a big mind shift. This is, this is the primary thing I see it as, like a mind shift, where you, you didn't think some things were possible, and then suddenly they were. Like just in a, in a blink, there were. Like you didn't think that your employer would let you go like two countries away to do your job. And suddenly you are. I mean, suddenly there it is. Nothing big has happened. Nothing wrong has happened. You can still do it. Why not? I mean, this is going to be a new environment we are negotiating in. Totally. That really served as a trigger. And it's true. You know, you just reminded me last year, uh, I was still working at the bank as an employee and I accepted the new job offer. But in order for me to stay, I was suggested by the bank, what can we do? At least something. And that's how I started to work remotely for the next eight months. So you see, back then it was like, we are doing this specifically for you. It's once in a lifetime, uh, a super rare case. Now everyone is doing that and, you know, not a big deal. I really hope we will move back, move somewhere from this mentality of if I'm not seeing you, means you're not there and means you're not doing anything. Because the fact is, at least for a while, people are becoming more productive. I think, I think they are. I think they are becoming more productive for various reasons. I also think that people will still, still need to meet other people. Like office space is not going to die. You still need to meet other people. You still feel lost but if you don't. reality since last May, and what I want to add here is the matter of choice. When you're seeing people you're not friends with in the same office for nine and more hours and you have to listen to, to the chatter and you have to be there and anyone can approach you with whatever question at any moment is one thing. But when you're working remotely and then you can attend whatever club you want, whatever, like for me it was Toastmasters, the public speaking club, where I'm really going specifically into the community of like-minded people, uh, ambitious, trying to change something in their life, become more confident. So they took public speaking in English, 
uh, as their you know free time activity you know this little choice of where i'm spending my time and which tribe i choose to to stick to that's a big difference even for the mental health at least for me it was the case i need people yes i need i admit it um, i really need people but you know I'd rather spend eight hours on my own, just like that at home, and then go outside, meet friends that are my friends, or even, you know, random people. There is a, uh, a thing I was brewing in my head for a while. How do you know what you don't know? How do you get to know the concepts that you don't know? You know, you can Google what you've heard and get more information about it, but how do you stumble upon information and concepts that were not in your uh, medium in the beginning pop your bubble bubble. i think i think the i think the the concept of choice is very important like we now have a concept of choice and if this stays like this this is going to be a major positive that comes out of this crisis pre-last question up to three things that you've learned in the U.S. during this MIT program that you think are implementable in the cities in Eastern Europe? Well, as I said, public-private partnerships are one thing that needs to be looked at. The other thing is the amount of volunteering and the amount of citizen networking that is happening in some places. This has been affected by ages of socialism in Central and Eastern Europe, which made volunteering uh, a dirty word. But I think that the level of self-organization and the level of urban movements that we see now is a good sign and it's going to continue. And people connecting to each other to make their cities better is a wonderful thing. And uh, third factor is the involvement of the private sector. Unfortunately, the private sector in Central and Eastern Europe has not been involved to the level it needs to be in making the places better, like the environment better. And that's good for them also because they're the ones that attract people, that need to attract people in order to have more human capital. And you don't do that just by making your place of work better. You do that by making the environment better. And the things are really going to start to change when the private sector comes in and decides it needs to invest more into the way cities look, the way cities operate. This is the major factor, I think. Right. Then to wrap it up, one last question. Your book suggestion or movie suggestion or one piece of advice for the listeners. Maybe someone wants to go deeper into the subject, urban sustainability, urban studies, what would you suggest to do, where to go, what are the go-to resources, at least one? In my, in my stay in the U.S., I've actually read a book that I found fascinating in terms of journalistic uh, achievement and in terms of describing the local governance in the U.S. to a detail level I've never seen before. And I've been able to compare the way the U.S. has developed to the Central and Eastern European case. And that's, the name of the book is Power Broker, and it's called Robert Moses and the Fall of New York by Robert Carroll. It's a fascinating achievement. It has won Pulitzer. It's an old book. It's from the 70s, I think. But it is the book to go to 
if you want to understand how local governance in the U.S. works, and also if you want to understand how a journalistic investigation works. This is a, a fantastic read. This is a long and fantastic read that I highly recommend to anyone who wants to go deeper into any of those two things. I've, I've been really amazed by it. There you found this intersection of investigative journalism and local powers and urbanism. And True. True. Amazing. It is a seminal achievement, yes. Thank you so much for this uh, interview, Ogi, uh, for finding time and sharing with me and the listeners. It was very cool to learn from you today. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was, it was lovely being here and talking to you. I, I always love sharing thoughts on these issues. Thanks. Have a good day. Yeah. Ciao, ciao. Have a good day also. you enjoyed this episode if you have any questions do let me or Ognan know you can find both of us on LinkedIn if you like the podcast please consider subscribing sharing on your social media or leaving a review and rating on the platform you're listening on or all of this together I would appreciate a lot if you rate us on our podchaser page and leave a review there I reply each and everyone personally By taking your time to give your honest feedback, you help me improve this show and also you help more people interested in practical steps of sustainability to discover this channel. I'd also like to use this opportunity to invite you to check some other related episodes out. So far we did two more episodes related to urban sustainability. I suggest you to start with Urban Sustainability with Go Ter Yang, my classmate born and raised in Singapore, Uh, and an episode called How to Build a Sustainable City, Lessons from Singapore with Estelle Forger. Speaking of the latter, Estelle's book that she was writing while in Singapore um, is out, live, printed, uh, for sale as of June 23. These two episodes are very close to the topic we, are discussed, we have discussed today with Ogi. Other than that, we have a lot of exciting interviews and guests covering a range of topics from bed sheets, flowers, buildings, business models, tourism, fashion, to economy, um, and even cannabis, and, and many, many more interesting episodes and topics. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, challenge me with your questions. You can as well suggest guests, maybe you were the next guests, or topics that you'd like me to cover in the future. This was Sustainability Explored, episode number 45, and me, your host, Anna Chashina. Thank you again for listening, for being with us today, and until next time, next Thursday. Take care, stay sustainable. Bye-bye.